Welcome back to the Thoughts and Found podcast with Adam and Danielle McKenzie, where we chat about the space in between what we think and what we discover. Along with our guests, we explore topics related to life, work, family, and relationships with an emphasis on learning, understanding, and becoming better humans. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Mark Wilkinson. Dubbed Dr. Mark by his students, Mark sees the world and his participation in it with no limits, often to the surprise of others remarking on how many different things he has done with his life and career. He has been, or still is, a teacher, actor, singer, yoga instructor, health educator, dancer, pianist, voiceover artist and narrator, public servant, English, French, translator, choral conductor, photographer, mental health advocate, tour guide, tennis coach, and lifelong student. And he jokes that he's come a long way from his Kingston This Week newspaper route as a youth. Mark holds an applied collaborative doctorate in music, speech, and hearing science and otolaryngology from The Ohio State University. As a vocologist, he works with professional and pre-professional voice users to develop, train, and sometimes rehabilitate their sung and spoken voices. He presents master classes, clinics, workshops, and classes around North America in voice care and health, singing techniques, learning science and curriculum design, and mindfulness. He has taught at the universities of Toronto, Alberta, and Ottawa, as well as The Ohio State University. When not performing on stage or helping others to do so, Mark takes photos of his many adventures on trails and lakes as a passionate outdoorsman and remains dedicated to environmentalism and nature conservation, using his photography to document the earth we so often forget when in the throes of our daily lives and worries. Mark is a lover of philosophy, poetry, and stoicism, all of which feed his interest in pondering life's big questions and how to be more compassionate and gentle to everyone and everything around him. Will Dr. Mark ever host his own podcast, you may ask? He jokes that he's going to wait and see how appearing on Thoughts and Found goes first before making his decision. He sends his gratitude to Danielle and I and our daughter for risking our reputation by having him on the show. And by that, he means he is truly thankful to be reconnecting with friends over delightful conversation. As are we, Mark. With his joyfulness, kindness, baritone voice, and standing at a formidable six feet, four inches tall, Mark is a presence who stays with you from the first time you encounter him. I am proud and humbled to call him a friend and colleague, and we here at Thoughts and Found are thrilled for our series of discussions with him. Mark can be found online at www.mwilkinson.ca, that's Wilkinson, W-I-L-K-I-N-S-O-N, and he is on Twitter and Instagram at Mark L. Wilkinson. Now, before we get into the conversation, please enjoy a brief performance of Mark's, about a minute and a half, singing the lead vocal in Sean Kirkner's I'll Be On My Way. The performance also features Mark's colleagues, the Ohio State Men's Glee Club, Casey Cook on the piano, Kiahui Tan on the violin, and Robert J. Ward conducting. The performance will give you the shivers, and then please stay tuned for our wide-ranging conversation. Enter Mark. Oh, yeah. 
right, we are now recording, Mark. How's it going there today? Good, how are you? I'm wonderful. I am so happy that um, we have finally been able to sit down and do this. I will have um, a bio of you that we will I'll, I'll read and, and load up before this episode, so we don't have to go into um, some of that extra stuff right at the moment. Um, but uh, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to be here. This is a long time, several years in the making. And look at us. In spite of a pandemic, we finally got here. This is great. We have indeed. This is this is wonderful. Um, I just thought we could start off uh, briefly talking about like how we met and how we got to know each other. And that was several years ago. We both were working in the, the same department uh, with the Federal Public Service of Canada. And uh, we didn't overlap a whole lot there, but we did get to know each other, speak to each other on a few occasions, um, mostly towards the time right before your contract ended, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we bumped into each other on the street of downtown Ottawa several months after that and then had a chat for a few minutes. Uh, and then there was an interlude of several years where we weren't, we weren't in touch while you were pursuing your academic pursuits. Uh, but then we reconnected again right at the beginning of the pandemic when uh, you were back in Canada, which is a story in and of itself after your your studies in the in the States. Yep. Um, and you sent out sort of a, a message on LinkedIn, uh, reconnecting with colleagues, and that was how we got in touch. And several catch up video chats later, here we are. I know it's amazing to think that when we first met and were working together, we were in an actual office building together. Mm -hmm. That, that was a thing that people used to do and that we ran into each other in person on the street like people used to do it, it feels like yesterday but it also feels like a another time you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it has been a blur in, in many many respects absolutely but i remember we worked on the same floor mm -hmm. which is why we connected in that sense and i remember thinking you were just the nicest guy the best kind of <laughs> colleague you could ask for and so we connected on linkedin and I ended up leaving that position to pursue something else in my life, which I'm sure we'll maybe talk about today. Mm -hmm. And um, but we just sort of lightly kept in touch. And I just remember thinking, mm -hmm. oh, Adam's such a nice guy, you know. And, uh, well, and thank you for that. Of course, of course. <laughs> like likewise. Oh, thank you. And uh, bumped into you on the street. Then I went and had an adventure in the United States of America, and uh, came back to Canada under crazy circumstances, and just. Uh, I think there was either a message waiting from you or from me. Someone had messaged each other last. Mm -hmm. I think it was you who had messaged me last. And I said, well, this is a few years late. Sorry about that. But here we go. And I reconnected. And Better late than never, eh? That's... No, that's great. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened. Um, and then here we are. We thought it would be cool to um, uh, just to do some podcast episodes. That was something that uh, my wife and I had started. And you um, were also in the middle of doing some online work. As, as you've done with your your musical background, your musical training, um, and the uh, instruction you provide, so it was a nice fit for us to say, "Hey, let's sit down and figure out something we can do together." And thoughts and found is one of the best podcast titles I've heard in a long time. So thank well you very done. much. Well done. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. It's um, it just sort of came to us uh, one day. Um, I think I was actually reading um, a book on our back deck in Ottawa. I think I was reading Dune actually, um, mm. Frank Herbert. And I can't remember exactly what the passage was, but it just kind of popped into my head. And I set the book down, walked in and said to my wife, I, th I think, what do you think of this? Like, I, I think I just got something here. And she said the same shit. I love it. Let's just run with that. I love it. That's just so good. Um, and we just kept it from that point. So it's sort of the, uh, the middle space between what we think and what we find out or discover. 
and I think there's um, there's often a lot of interesting room for learning and understanding in the middle. Yeah, I think it's a really, really um, intriguing, provocative, but yet gentle uh, title as well. I think it's really, really cool. Cool. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that feedback. It's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So today, I, I wondered, let's just go back to the beginning. Let's talk about um, who you are, mm -hmm. uh, your growing up years, your family, the development of your, your interests, your hobbies, um, your academic pursuits, sort of the pathway that's led you to where you are today as somebody who has a PhD, who's done some fascinating uh, work related to voice, voice health, um, some interdisciplinary work with education. Um, I'm really, really excited to hear about your superhuman ability to detect if people are lying um, <laughs> uh, through their their voice. And you said you you've sort of developed this ability or or have some insights into that. Uh, I can't wait to hear about that. I think it's super fascinating. Cool. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you and, and you say, where do you want to start? Tell me about your your time growing up and your your family, your friends life for you it was such a long time ago what can <laughs> yeah. i say, what can I say? Um, well so it, it really goes back to kingston ontario where i was born beautiful city so i am what one might call thanks to eliza schlesinger an elder millennial okay. so i am i'm a millennial but i was a millennial who didn't have internet for a long time and uh so i was born on september 16th 1987 to Two loving parents have an older sister named Claire who is practically my best friend so I'm very grateful got along that well and I was born into as I said a loving intellectual creative open-minded family and I had two parents that didn't see their children living in boxes they they never saw us as one thing or the other they just said you do want to do sports you play sports if you want to read books you read books you want to study you study they were very good about just letting the children sort of find their their own way mm -hmm. for my parents what was most important was being on time being kind saying thank you and please to your waiter <laughs> tipping your waiter being respectful being a human and a humane human at that and beyond that, if you were just treating people well, whatever you did in your life was only going to be a reflection of that. So that was very formative for me. That was a very important thing to have as parents. I have very down-to-earth, very uh, unpretentious parents, which is interesting because they're so educated and so smart. <laughs> My parents are so smart um, that they could be a little bit nose in the air based on their, you know, their CVs, if you might want to sort of box them in but they're funny and down to earth and just intimidatingly smart so i uh, felt like i was playing catch up at the dinner table <laughs> i did my best to keep up as, as best i could and uh yeah so i was a kid who i think the first word that i said in my high chair was happy awesome we'd sit there in my little high head voice and go happy i would just say happy all the time and i think my family thought good lord this kid is made of sunshine i mean i had the blonde you know this sort of frizzy blonde sticky outy hair and just i i loved being happy that was the kind of kid that i was and so that's I really, wonderful no oh, thanks i mean i i really didn't see the world with limits that's what i knew i knew that i didn't care that girls played with dolls and guys played with trucks. I didn't see 
<laughs> why that was a thing. I just thought all of the world was interesting. So I didn't ever see the world through a box, which gets you in trouble as a kid sometimes because that's not always socially acceptable, but especially in the 80s. Um, but I just thought if it's fun, why not do it? So I was interested in sports, I was interested in art, I was interested in school. I, I, I never saw things as being for this person or that person. If I was interested in it, I wanted to gobble it up. So as much of an introvert as I may be, I was still gregarious enough as a kid because if it was interesting to me, I wanted to participate. So I was a very, very curious, happy kid. And uh, one of the first things I did was dance. I was a dancer. I mean, I feel mm -hmm. like dancing before I could walk. And um, that came along with gymnastics as well, because gymnastics is this interesting sport where it's very athletic, but also very artistic, right? So there was a lot of dancing involved and floor exercises and things like that, coordination, balance. So I was an athlete and a dancer from the start. That was just so exciting to me. And I was also the kind of kid, I wouldn't come home until I had grass stains and cuts and mud and bruises on me. You know what I mean? If I didn't go out and um, really play <laughs> um, in the yard, working on my jump shot in the basketball court, working on my serve on the tennis court, I was just a kid who loved to be active. So it was no surprise that I was a, a natural athlete and mm -hmm. had coordination for dance. I played the piano. so. Dance was sort of like music and athletics coming together. So I just, I loved life. I really enjoyed exploring all sorts of things. And I was really, really lucky to have parents and a, and a sister as well, who didn't ever fence me in, in that sense. They mm -hmm. said, you know, do what you enjoy. Now, of course, I like to joke that eventually my parents said, okay, Mr. Plays 10 sports. Can you pick like two here? <laughs> two or three? Kind of rain it in a little bit here. <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, because sports are a privilege, unfortunately. Still, there are some sports that are a privilege, especially sports like tennis, where the equipment is pretty expensive. Although I'm very proud of the fact that I actually bought my first tennis racket, my first real tennis racket I bought with my paper route money. So I was very, I'm very proud of that fact. Your so parents were also remember, working. I remember the bank stuff. statements. Remember when you'd print bank statements? You had the yeah. little book, a little blue book. We'd pass, pass book there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I remember seeing I had enough money on my little printed bank statement to buy myself my first real tennis racket. So your parents were also working to instill that, uh, you know, work hard for it, be responsible for it, manage money, all the that other life management stuff, too. Apparently, I was a little accountant when I was, when I was young. Who knew? But I, I did. I, I understood the concept of, you know, deposit versus withdrawal. And yeah, it's just these life skills. So I think the, the thing that I'm most grateful for in my life is the things that I got to do that taught me about life, but that I wouldn't have been able to do to learn about that life had I not been given the life that my parents and my family gave me. If that circular idea makes sense, it's sort of, mm -hmm. that's what privilege begets, right? That's what that opportunity, and I'm really grateful I had parents that didn't let me squander that opportunity mm -hmm. to learn from the the joys that i was afforded in my life and so i um yeah i was just a really curious intellectual athletic kid who just couldn't wait to be active so it's no surprise i'm still playing sports to this day but that was that was my life curiosity school sports arts um i just i'm, I'm a lucky guy so cool wow so you was there a particular type of of 
dance that you pursued for a certain period of time or was there a certain type of uh, sport that you ended up gravitating into um those you know your favorites or something like that yeah i mean i i would dance along with the radio as you know as soon as i could walk and then i also remember watching things like singing in the rain you know seeing gene mm -hmm. kelly i thought that was so cool and i thought tap dance was just fascinating and um so eventually when i really started to get into acting when i really started to train as an actor naturally you do musicals and naturally there's dancing and musicals so it, it did certainly make its way towards jazz styles modern styles pop styles and then of course there's some tap as well mm -hmm. ballet I mean this much just a tiny tiny <laughs> i think i remember my you know my positions my basic my basic positions in ballet but i was definitely very taken by the theatrical styles which made sense because i was an actor and i was I playing the piano and i was singing in choir you know so it it all it all sort of followed suit and then in terms of sports again i so many i played so many unfortunately one thing that happened to me when i was just just before i was six uh, it was the summer before I turned six. So it was five and three quarters, I think I would have said at that age. I almost broke my neck doing gymnastics. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, and unfortunately, though I stayed in gymnastics for a few more years, I never quite tumbled the way that I did. I was just right. always, from that point, going to be cautious and scared a little bit. So mm -hmm. um, I, I loved gymnastics and the strength and the flex flexibility, but I think I was forever a little bit frightened to tumble because I did it. It happened while I was doing a backflip, so right. it just always kind of scared me. So I had started to move into tennis anyway, um, and so I really got into tennis. I almost became a professional tennis player. Actually, I was sort of on that path. Wow! And um, I did track. I was a sprinter. Uh, I loved basketball. I loved volleyball. Yeah, swimming. I did all of my aqua fit. <laughs> swim swim sure. levels right up to bronze cross and all that stuff and so wow. um anything i could get my hands on but the one that i really ended up becoming quite interested in was tennis which was interesting because tennis is a very individual sport mm -hmm. it's kind of you against your opponent and yet you have this team of guys that in my case that you were playing with right so we had this team in kingston that was sort of the provincial team so we would go to the different tournaments around the province which basically meant toronto and so <laughs> we're a couple in ottawa but most of the ontario tennis association tournaments were in toronto and so we would go and it was an interesting sport and it kind of defines me in a way because i was um very anxious socially i think as a kid not around adults but around people my own age i always felt like i was eight going on 80 a little bit so i i found tennis very interesting because on the court it really was my own doing right if the ball was out it's because i hit it out so it was a very sort of individual kind of introverted sport in a way mm -hmm. and yet i had to learn <laughs> sometimes successfully sometimes not successfully how to interact with my teammates and it was an interesting journey and i think that's kind of tennis is a good little microcosm of life because you're mm -hmm. on your own but you're also with other people and how do you navigate that relationship especially when you're playing against someone that you want to beat quote unquote you know air quotes um that you want to win against but respecting them as a person too and not seeing them as 
any less human just because of sport. And we all know we've seen <laughs> we've seen on the news and on social media that people can lose their minds over sports. And so um, sports are a really good opportunity for me to decide what really mattered in life and and what was really going to be important at the end. Mm -hmm. Well, that and that calls to mind uh, a recent example. The name of the gymnast is escaping me right now, but she was a, a member of um, Team USA at the uh, the recent Olympics. And towards the final, she was doing exceptionally well. And towards the final, she just had to say, I, I can't do this day. I'm just, I'm just not in the right headspace. And it's too dangerous. And, you know, she just had to had to withdraw from that competition. And she took so much flack, um, you know, for, for that decision. And uh, fortunately, she had a, a huge number of, um, of supporters, people who backed her up and said a lot of the same things that, you know, there's, you know, you're there to compete, absolutely, um, but not necessarily at any cost, whether that's cost to you, whether it's cost to you know, destroying your opponent or something. Um, and it's really called to mind the the humanitarian aspect of sport. Yeah, that was, some, that was Simone Biles. Simone Biles, thank you. Yeah, of course, yeah. And the thing about Simone Biles is she's possibly the greatest gymnast that's ever lived, and she doesn't need to... She doesn't owe anybody anything. She can, <laughs> she she is uh, perfectly sovereign and has agency of her own health to do what mm -hmm. she wants. And I thought that was such a classy, classy move. And she doesn't owe the sport or anybody else sitting in their armchairs on Twitter on their iPhones anything. And yeah. so she's a great example of strength of character, integrity of self, mm -hmm. and not supplanting sport over life. Right. That's a really, really important thing because sports are, sports are supposed to teach you about life. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to take over your life. They're supposed mm -hmm. to exist within this thing called being human where you mm -hmm. participate with the world, right? You, you aren't an island. You are allowed to be okay with who you are, but we do have to participate in the world. And sometimes when we participate with the world, it doesn't always align with us and it isn't always going to be healthy for mm -hmm. who and what we are. And so she was a wonderful, wonderful example. And I remember the support that came behind her when she was getting all that flack. And I was definitely one of them because <laughs> I, I'm a fan of sports. I love sports to this day, but not to the point where we lose ourselves and mm -hmm. we lose our own sense of health. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I agree. How did... Um... How did you make the transition or when into acting? You said you do mm. training as an actor too. And so I'm curious about your your training um, and when that started, where it started, and if that was a you know a natural step from um, the sports, the the dance and music that you were doing. I mean, a lot of things in your life already seem it's it's been this natural evolution of of factors all coming together. It, it you know this what you've told me and and the story you've painted just just now. So I want to see how this piece fits. So one of the things that surprises people about me is how type B I am. I am the opposite of type A. I am not a type A person at all. Um, People th sometimes think that when you get to the PhD and blah, blah, all these quote unquote, you know, inverted commas, successful things that you get, that you planned every step of it and that you were this ambitious. I am the most go with the flow, unplanned, frustratingly sometimes to my colleagues and my family. <laughs> I am the most 
go with the flow doer. I'm a doer. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want your flow chart. I don't want your table of, you know, critical paths. I just, <laughs> I want to know who you are, what we're up to, and how we can do it in a kind, humane way, right? And thank you for drawing me along um, on that front too, and in, in getting this episode going. It's been very instrumental to. Uh, landing us here together today so you're very welcome my pleasure i just go with it just press the go button you know very very now i'm i'm an intellectual so i think intellectually i just don't tend to overthink planning you know like last week i went to toronto because i felt like it they said oh what was it for well there was a few things i was doing but i also had just been wanting to go to toronto for a while so i have a car and i filled it up with gas and off i went so anyway the point of this story excuse me taking up oxygen here is um that everything in my life has been natural and sensical and a series of why nots cool. and so when you're singing in choir and you're playing the piano and you're a dancer well, you know where they could use those skills? In the theater. <laughs> and when you know how to convey a message through a song, you know how to convey a message through your body, you know how to convey your message through an instrument. Is that not just acting, right? I mean, is that not what storytelling is? Mm -hmm. So before I knew it, I was encouraged to start doing some plays and some musicals. And obviously dance was a part of that, right? Because I was, um, often cast in dancing roles because of my background in dance and I discovered this ability to be other people and it was kind of fun to take on someone else's skin and someone's story and and, and it teaches you a lot about empathy. So all that to say I happen to be from a city with a wonderful drama program at my high school so I um, Mr. Ian Malcolm he's well known because many of his students have been at Stratford and many of his students have done wonderful things Chalina Kennedy being a very well-known one around around Stratford for example so there's a little cohort of us from Kingston Collegiate and Vocational Institute, KCVI, which is no longer a school, sadly. Um, but uh, yeah, we had Mr. Malcolm and Mr. Fraser eventually when Mr. Malcolm retired, um, Kevin Fraser. And um, it was just really good drama training. It was just really good look into the basics of, of, of acting. Not to mention, I was doing every play I could get my hands on. <laughs> so that training plus just doing it where you have to just get up, open your mouth and speak the lines with an audience and a director and a choreographer and colleagues. And so I really got a crash course in acting through the drama program at my school and through just, just doing it. Wow. Did that um, then transfer into uh, like community productions or productions that you that you then um, became part of as you started into um, post-secondary academics as well? Absolutely, yeah. It was very natural that I ended up doing some community productions, a few of which were actually quite more than community productions. I remember we did a production of Les Mis, um, all with teenagers and young adults. And I mean, it was... It was a really good, I mean, it felt like we were kind of making professional theater in a way. And um, what better push for kids to, to do that, to take on a project like that? It was amazing. Well, what they did is the creators of Les Mis actually created a youth version of it. Oh, okay. So it's a slightly modified 
not crazily modified, but slightly mm -hmm. modified version of it that um, allows younger people to feel like they can attain. Because that show is a big, that's a... It's a big story. A big scope of a story, and it's very dramatic, and it's this very French, you know, <laughs> drama, and, you know, so then you have teenagers understand. But, you know, teenagers who want to be actors, they they get it and they're, they're interested in doing that. So that led me to, and of course I was doing high school plays and musicals along the way as one does with their friends. And um, that actually led me to some professional theater as a teenager as well. So there was a little national tour of a Christmas carol that had come through, which I participated in. I grew up near the Thousand Islands Playhouse. So I did a show at the Thousand Islands Playhouse. You know, so I was getting a, a taste for it. And I was doing a workshop, I was, taking a workshop at Randolph, the Randolph Academy, which is a musical theater academy in Toronto. Okay. And um, I was still in high school and we were in the portion where we were singing with the music director. And he sort of looked out and he sort of said, come here. <laughs> I said, yes. He said, you can sing. And I said, oh, well, thanks. I mean, I do musicals. He said, no, 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 no. You can, you can sing. <laughs> I think he heard something in the tone quality of my voice because we were singing in a group, but he still noticed. But again, I thought singing would be a part of my life as an actor because lots of actors sing, right? We do musicals, we do mm -hmm. concerts and jazz and things like that. And so I had been planning to go to theater school as one does when one wants to be an actor. And before I knew it, I was at opera school. <laughs> wow. And again, typical me, I go where the light's green. You know, I go to with the flow where, where it felt like there was a natural progression. And he said, yeah, you should go to voice school. You should you should be a voice major in music school. And I said, OK, <laughs> I was like 17. I was sure. OK, yeah. and um, <clears throat> because for me, singing and acting are but the same thing right singing is just acting through song so i never felt like i was abandoning my life as an actor i never felt like i was abandoning my training and in fact when you sing a song especially in classical music when all of the dynamics the phrase markings the the staccati the you know all of the musical markings that you have are dictated for you it's a really really interesting process to learn how to act a song naturally and truthfully when the phrasing that you normally get to choose in spoken text based on how you're when that's already dictated for you it can be very difficult to find one's own sense of self and one's own interpretation so for me studying song was actually the acting training that i needed because it was a it was a way to make sure that you weren't just doing something by rote that you weren't just doing it because the next note it says to sing this word how do you make sure that that's really real and that you're truly motivating every line so i wouldn't trade opera school for the world honestly i really really wouldn't because that was what i needed in terms of acting i had such a great training in it in high school and by doing all of those shows not that i was above theater school i just mean i i i knew i would learn things in theater school but i also knew i was going to learn just as much if not more challenging things in uh, music school or, or you know as a voice major because interpreting a song is a really difficult thing to do and so um i certainly saw it as an actor i never I never abandoned what I was doing. I just happened to become a musician along the way. It was very strange. Mm. But I played the piano too, right? So it it, it all kind of came together. It's, it's interesting, um, that point. I think 
the way I can relate to it right away is, you know, we've all been to concerts and even artists um, in trying to express their own songs differently, it can be hit and miss sometimes. Uh, I mean, you know, again, we don't all have to pay attention to the all the critics writing the reviews and things like that, yeah. because most people aren't up there trying to do something different with their own material anyway. Yeah. But, but sometimes it just doesn't work, you know, like, like a, I've certainly been to concerts where I'm like, well, I, I like the one on the album better, or I like the one that they did at their last concert better. It's the same song. The version just doesn't work the same way. So yeah, trying to reinterpret, I can understand that the challenge would be really, really difficult to that. And then doing it during, in the constraints of uh, if somebody else has written the music that you are then trying to interpret and bring alive, give some meaning to. I, can, I hadn't thought about it to that extent, but it seems like that would be a really challenging prospect. It's challenging for what you just said, absolutely. Especially with recorded music, where you can do a lot with your voice in a recording. Right. right. Live. Lives, the whole different beast again, I'm yeah, sure. For sure. Um, I also just want to check in. Pardon me. Um, I think my microphone switched for some reason. Are you still hearing me okay? I'm still hearing you okay. Um, sound quality is all right? Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. I just want to make sure. Yeah, for sure. Surely, surely. All right. So, um, so not only because you can't do everything live that you can do in a recording, there also is the audience involved. Diana Kroll, who is one of our great jazz pianists and singers, I adore Diana Kroll, she said, you also have to make sure that the audience can interpret the song too. And I really, really, really love that idea. The idea being that the audience, it's like a book, right? The audience is going to interpret it through their lens. And if you just force an interpretation on them, you don't give space for their own experience, for their own background, their own biases, their own things that are going to allow them to experience a song. If I sing, you know, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, that can be a very joyful song for some people. And it can be a very melancholic song for other people, right? So there are different things that words are going to bring out. And so as an interpreter of song, even text too, whether I'm acting a player or an opera, it doesn't matter. There has to be room for the audience to feel what they're going to feel about it as well. And sometimes when that artist maybe that you saw in concert had this idea, they wanted to sing it this way, that doesn't necessarily translate to an audience all the time if you don't give them space to participate. So I think of the audience as a collaborator as well. And sometimes the venue that I'm in, the number of people in the audience, how my health is that day, the energy I'm getting from the audience, that can completely change how I sing a song. And I think that it should. And I'm going to name drop here. Excuse me. Big name drop thud coming here. I was doing a play with Margaret Atwood. Thud. There is the name drop. Um, and she was delightful to work with, by the way. She was lovely. Um, and at the end, because she's Margaret Atwood, everybody was there to see her. <laughs> she did a Q&A. And somebody asked her a question that I think she may have been asked before. And the woman said to her, what did you mean by this book? What did you want us to know by this book? And Margaret Atwood just calmly said, well, it doesn't matter what I want you know, to what I meant by the book. It's your interpretation. And I love that, that this world famous Handmaid's Tale celebrity, you know, author said, 
I write books so that you can have an experience. It doesn't matter what I write in the book. And I, I thought, first of all, how humble, mm-hmm. <laughs> how generous, and how artistic of her mm-hmm. to, even though she may have had something to say about the world, and I mean, many of her books do, if you've seen mm-hmm. it, sell, right? There's clearly mm-hmm. some messages there. Yeah. But I love that even still, she allowed the audience to have an interpretation. Mm-hmm. I happened to learn about, I witnessed her do that. And then I learned about Diana Krall's quote within a few years of each other. And so for me as an actor, that was very formative for me. That was very important to see these two great artists who are two of our great storytellers ever actually admit to leaving space for the audience. And I just thought that's so cool. And that was such a humbling experience because when you're a young actor, you're constantly trying to prove yourself. <laughs> when right. you're a singer, you're constantly trying to prove that you can interpret, you know, you can tell a story. And it really just, it really deepened my breath. It really relaxed mm. into my own interpretations because I stopped trying to be something and I just started to allow things to flow through me. Mm-hmm. But I get then, it under pressure because you want to you want to make it when you're a young, you're a young actor. I get it. Mm-hmm. And and a huge part of the equation is is really not even about then your interpretation. It is as as an artist, it's it's how your work or in creativity are interpreted. Interpreted exactly. Interpreted. It's a two way street, and so mm-hmm. it was a really important step for me in my journey. Mm-hmm. Wow, there's there's so many so many points you've you've already brought up. I would love to just I gotta make some some extra notes here. Okay, we need to do another separate discussion on this and on that. Yeah. Uh, this is why it's called the human opera, right? Many the human opera. There are many know, acts. That's it. And and in fact, thank you for mentioning that uh, because that was something um, I didn't mention at the beginning of our recording. Is that uh, the framing of how um, you suggested we set up our series of discussions as as a human opera? Uh, because there are, as you've mentioned already, there are so many links. Um, in your story between um, music and dance and art and acting and academics and sport and, and movement life. and life and all these things. And they all come together. And like, you know, you, you bring in that sort of that operatic metaphor and, and connecting it to just plain being human, I think is, is awesome. So, um, so for our listeners and viewers, the human opera saga is what we are sort of working on here at the moment and that's great thank you for that suggestion you're welcome it's um and i don't say opera in like soap opera i don't say it with any mm-hmm. sort of facetiousness <laughs> to it i mean none taken no i'm sure but for our listeners more mm-hmm. you know it's it, it's more you know opera can have a bit of a i don't know a tenuous kind of reputation and everyone thinks it's all dramatic and it's you know just people in horns singing high notes and but if you actually pay attention to the really good operas and the and the operas that are done well and that could go for plays too that could go for musicals when i say human opera i mean it really is anything on the stage but if you really pay attention to what's going on it is it is talking about life right it is talking about the ups and downs and the trials and no matter how how much we want to avoid it. Life is happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Music is playing, right? The show must go on, as they say. So I think there's a lot of, of things to be learned from, from learning how to tell stories. Where did you do your opera training? And do you think that that is an appropriate spot for that training to take place? Or should 
students be introduced to it at earlier stages, given these sort of broader mm -hmm. world applications that, that you see in it? And I'm asking that because I actually have never seen an opera. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've never read an opera. Uh, I've never studied music um, in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I love musicals. I, mm -hmm. I love, I love uh, live theater. So mm -hmm. I love a lot of the components um, that I think are there in opera. Uh, but frankly, I don't know much about it. In terms of the training, the, there are many answers to this question, but the, the Excellent. I'm going yeah, to start with the most basic one, which is physiology. When you sing opera, and in some cases, it depends on the theater. There are musicals and plays that are similar. But particularly with opera, you don't use a microphone. So we're not, as Renee Fleming says, we're not just low tech, we're no tech. <laughs> we, don't, we don't use tech beyond the lights on the stage. But in terms of our voice, we have no amplification. And so a 16-year-old shouldn't necessarily be able or forced to know how to project their voice into a 2,000-seat hall without a microphone. So in terms of opera and its accessibility to younger people, there is a physiological component there for me where one's voice and frankly one's neuroscience is still developing. And so when you impose upon a young artist a quote unquote, though this is a problematic term, operatic sound, inverted commas, um, you can force upon them a wobble to their sound, you can get them in sort of imitating an opera singer more than actually being able to do that through proper use of their voice. And then, so that's that's sort of the physiological component. But then academically, the other thing that I wonder in terms of opera specifically is we get very drawn to conservatories, right? We get drawn to the Juilliards and to the Curtis Institutes and the Peabody's and even University of Toronto and McGill are seen as these, you know, big, big, um, music schools, <laughs> full disclaimer, I teach a little bit at U of T, uh, <laughs> but you know, there's, um, there's this sense of, oh, I can't wait to be famous. And I can't wait to be a grand opera singer. But before you know it, you've lost out on a general education and you've, lo you've lost out on the opportunity to learn about life and about being a person. Because before you know it, you're spending so much time as an actor being other people that you forget to know how to be yourself. And so I am currently in the process of meditating on education level. This is my background in teaching coming out. Mm -hmm. um, the level of intellect, neurological development, artistic development, and frankly, emotional maturity. When you're 18 and you want to be an opera singer. And I can't tell you the number of people that years later realize that maybe they don't want to be an actor, a singer, or a dancer. And then they have these degrees where they took a choreography class and a, you know, <laughs> a voice literature class. And in terms of how that transfers to a, a, a quote-unquote real job, mm -hmm. uh, is a real job. Thank you very much. Acting is a real job. I don't mean to denigrate any of us who do this for a living, of course. But... I, I'm currently thinking about the level of education, about life and about themselves that I want people to have 
functionally on their transcripts, but also more spiritually in their own hearts about the world and, and having some skills and, and, and transferable ways of, of experiencing life and experiencing professional work beyond just the physiological development that we shouldn't be making 18-year-olds sound like they're 35. Right? That's, that's not a healthy thing for us to do, whether it's musicals, whether it's opera, whether it's jazz, whether it's country, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We can tend to um, really prioritize youth in the performing arts, right? You know, you, the teenager comes onto Canada's Got Talent and blows mm-hmm. us away and everybody, you know, loses their mind. And I think, but what's the sustainability of that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I would love to see more general undergraduate education if you're so lucky to have access to university Mm -hmm. um, where it's not that you don't sing i'd like people to learn the basics of singing it's not that you don't act i'd like people to learn the basics of acting and movement and dance and all of those things but for me in my dream world i would see real professional acting and real professional opera as more graduate work And I think there's a foundation you need to lay in undergrad in order to do that, of course. But um, so young, it's so young to want to be famous. And unfortunately, that's what draws a lot of people to those professions. Um, we don't like to admit that sometimes, but it, it's it's true. That's what draws a lot of young people to it. They see the lights, they see the marquee, they see the, you know, they see the glitz and the glam. And I sort of say, oh, okay, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Let's learn how to sing first. Let's learn how to be people first. Do you know how to be professional? Do you know how to be on time? Do you know how to take care of yourself? Do you know how to eat properly to maintain your your own instrument, which is your body in our case? You know, there's a lot of, do you, you know, do you know the basics of finance? Like we talked about a few minutes ago, right? Do you know how to take care of that? Do you know how not to be taken advantage of by an agent? You know, do you know how to audition? You know, there are a lot of things that I think come out of, life experience life experience personal Mm -hmm. development that lead to professional development and sometimes for the sake of degrees and fame and you know laudatory you know praise we can tend to throw young people into the lion's mouth a little bit and Mm -hmm. i i do question that i think that there is a way to create education that is broad that is holistic that is mindful and is specific. I don't think those things have to be mutually exclusive. I just think that whatever you're specifically interested in shouldn't take you away from the broad, beautiful things that there are to learn about the world along the way. And, um, as, I, as I said earlier, you get so good at being other people when you're an actor. And I realized I was getting really good at being other people, but I wasn't quite sure how to be myself. And I, I would encourage, and you know, in my work as a pedagogue and curriculum specialist, I always encourage wherever I can the opportunity for people to learn about themselves mm-hmm. as much as their craft. Well, I think that's where, again, to swing back to what we talked about earlier with sport as well, yeah. uh, I think there's a lot of overlap with what you said there. Um, you know, like Simone Biles was someone who didn't lose herself uh, because of her sport. In fact, she maintained that perspective that um, um, similar to like, you know, your injury, like, like, doing some of this like it can have very very serious consequences it's amazing when people excel and and get to a podium or hit hit the glamorous lights that they're looking for in life but those things can also come at a huge huge cost and if or when the time comes for an individual to step away from their sport or away from their artistic craft i agree there 
individuals have to have a sense of who they are, or you can find yourself. The risk is that you can find yourself rudderless in a world very quickly if your entire identity has become the become only the thing that you do. It starts to define you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when that goes away, because sometimes it goes away, so does yourself. Then yourself goes away too. Mm -hmm. And I excuse me, I have colleagues who have said very famously, if I cannot act or if I cannot sing, I am not. Mm -hmm. And I think, okay, cool. I love the dedication. But if you lose your voice or something happens to your physical movement or whatever, you know, that's that's a very difficult prospect. That's going to be a very difficult prospect for you. Mm -hmm. And so I love the dedication, but I, I worry a little bit about the existential journey of what that means and the things that you had to sacrifice for what? For accolades, for a resume, for a Tony, for, for whatever it is. Well, you and I have also talked about seeing this, the same thing happen um, even in professional settings, um, particularly with you know young employees coming in and um, they're so focused on um, a certain ideal of achievement that they want that um, they just haven't discovered themselves or figured out what they're what they're really there to do or really stop to understand the context in that in that case professionally that they're operating in um, and whether or not it's something they truly do want to continue on with or something that they're just maybe just trying out uh, on a on a career journey that's going to take them many other places uh, but there can be a tendency for people to box themselves in professionally. I can only imagine, I'm sure you've got stories to tell about uh, in academics as well. Uh, there's there's probably examples of that. Um, it's, it's, and it's, it's great when you can see people uh, maintain the perspective. I, I love that. I love discovering um, and meeting people who can keep that sense of self while they, they keep moving forward. I think that also adds a lot of strength and benefit to their craft when you, you don't lose that. Uh, it's, it's got a, it's, you've got a really an interesting paradox. You have to hang on to yourself in order to keep being good at what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Because if you lose it, it's, you know, it, it can go the other way. It sure can. And I've met several people who have <laughs> been on one end of the spectrum or the other. And I think that the journey comes from reminding ourselves that there's a reason that we have a faculty of arts and humanities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are human subjects. These are, these are topics that are about humanity. Mm -hmm. And acting is a great example because acting is but being empathetic to somebody else's experience that isn't your own. And when I meet actors who are fully realized, self-realized, it shows the best of acting because they are kind, they are patient, they are empathetic because they took from their training what they were supposed to take from their training. I'm not someone who says the word supposed to very often, but in this case I will, um, who were supposed to take that humanity from the art. And then when I meet actors who are demanding and difficult and yell and treat their colleagues terribly, I don't know how they act. I don't, how are you so good at acting? It's a very strange thing. It's one that I don't understand. I don't know how those two things can be so divorced from mm -hmm. each other because acting should make you a kinder person. 
the more shoes you step into, right? They always say walk a mile in someone else's shoes. The more shoes you step into, the more compassionate you should be. And so when I meet actors who were so hell-bent on being famous or, or whatever, whatever their accolade that they were looking for was, I, I don't know how they did that. I don't know how they developed a good acting technique and a total lack of empathy. I, I, I have no idea how that's possible. I almost want to do a study on it. <laughs> how you can seemingly be so empathetic. So what are you doing? If it isn't empathy, what are you doing that looks like empathy in order for you to be such a good actor? Right. Right. It, it, and maybe there is a whole technique that I don't know of that wasn't my technique. <laughs> my acting technique was all about empathy and compassion and, and you know, seeing it from other people's perspectives. You said the word perspective, right? So that's, that's my technique. Mm -hmm. well, I'm, really, I'm really always curious when I meet actors who, who, have, who lack compassion. I, 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 it's like it goes right over my head. I have no idea. <laughs> I think that's that's a, a great statement for pretty much anything. I, I think like it's it's amazing when you know, and and I I find it mesmerizing as well how you can have people become an expert in whatever they're an expert in, but seem to also lack some of those uh, social humanitarian skills or whatever however you want to um, contextualize that. It is it's a fascinating thing. I mean, you know, maybe they're just higher on certain personality traits towards the uh, sociopathic or psychopathic scale or something like that, I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but maybe there is like a, there's some kind of a, a personality or genetic makeup that contributes to that. Um, maybe it is a function of uh, being able to box in your thinking and your training to, to do something uh, that others of us have not learned how to do to the same extent. And there was a very famous, may she rest in peace and power, um, a soprano named Jesse Norman. And I mean, she's just one of my greatest, most legendary colleagues. I mean, just uh, the face of opera for so many years and just the most incredible voice and just such a barrier breaker, boundary breaker, just amazing. And she was asked once in an interview about how humble she was because she really was a very humble person. And she would say in her sort of Southern American yet mid-Atlantic refined accent, which I just loved, she would say, well, if you do the work, <laughs> there is nothing not to be humble about. <laughs> if you are putting in the work, that quality, talent, and, and, and art require of you, there is nothing to get an ego about. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. She was saying the only way I achieved this quote-unquote stature and status is because I did the work and I paid attention to what Strauss was telling me in the score and I was paying attention to what my conductor was trying to reveal and the suggestion that he made to me about how to, you know, and so I love that concept. And I'm just playing off of what you just said is that if you do the work, I don't understand how that can't humble you every single time, no matter what field you're in. If you really are putting in the time and the effort into the work that's involved to do right by others, to do right by yourself and to do right by the subject, um, I, I I just don't understand where that lack of compassion can come from. But I think you're right. I think there may be some genetic and psychological predispositions to certain things, especially around the fame of performing and publish, publishing and, you know, and being interviewed and um, getting all of the awards and all of that stuff. But um, overall, I have found that my colleagues in any all of these various fields of me being my 
<laughs> going through many fields in my life. Mm -hmm. But all of my colleagues, or most of my colleagues in my field who have achieved anything are actually the most lovely people because they did it the right way. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to report that the other ones are more the anomaly, uh, but um, it still fascinates me to this day how you can learn to be that good of an actor and that mean of a person. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting conundrum. Mm -hmm. You you also said too, you noticed um, a lot of that uh, same dynamic in your yoga pursuits. Yes. As well, you mentioned that uh, in a previous conversation that we have, where there's, uh, you know, again, you, you've got people who are, are can, can be very, very well trained, well qualified, uh, well well practiced, uh, but you you mentioned you've bumped into big egos in that world too. Can we really escape ourselves? It seems <laughs> it's just I've I've learned that no matter how inverted commas spiritual or grounded or you know well-meaning one's pursuit may be one's own traumas, one's own experiences, one's own fears, one's own insecurities, one's own whatever you, you know, it may be, one's ego, it, they will always come into play. And yes, absolutely. I was, for the our listeners, I was for about two years actually really making my living full-time, almost as a yoga teacher full-time. Mm -hmm. I sort of stepped away from acting and singing for a while. I got a couple of gigs here and there that helped supplement yoga through acting and singing, which was nice, but I really was making my living as a yoga teacher. And again, as is life, the majority of my colleagues were lovely. We're just, just lovely. Of course, yeah. But there was a surprisingly large minority of yoga teachers who reminded you that no matter how spiritual or grounded a practice may be, if you need a job, your elbows can come out. Because yoga teachers are terribly underpaid, very self-employed, very much without benefits, very much without a retirement plan. And so you are a gig worker. So in a way, in many ways, my yoga colleagues reminded me of my acting colleagues because they were just as desperate as an actor for the next gig, the next steady thing to teach or perform or whatever it is. And so there was definitely a parallel there. And I saw much more gossip and much more ill will and much more um, mean spirits, you know, mean, mean spiritedness than, than I um, had anticipated, but then I very quickly got over that because it was around that time in my life that I was realizing that that's everywhere. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was my own sort of growing up, and I said, you know, Mark, I think I think this is just how the world works. I think there's always going to be, and anybody listening to this, no matter what their job is, they know that eighty percent of their colleagues are lovely, and twenty percent of them are not great to work with. And I think that's just just the, the normal curve statistically speaking of of life really it's the 80 20 right yeah, yeah. i'm sure my yeah. listeners have experienced the 80 20 of life and mm -hmm. i think that's just what it is and yet you convince yourself in the arts and yoga and you know these very lovely dovey humanity sort of things that it won't be like that and it is <laughs> mm -hmm. You then moved into academics as a as a pursuit for a number of years, um, culminating relatively recently with your PhD over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, you you said uh, 
that also came from your interest growing up in in neuroscience, in education, in yeah. um, in cognition. Yeah. Um, how did all of that come together for that next phase of your life, or that that phase? That that sounds too linear time wise. <laughs> that next branch or, or or pathway that you went down Ooh, to. Branch. I like that. Oh. I'm going to steal that. Um, <laughs> so when I was almost turning 30, it was just before I turned 30, I had had this life where I had acted, I had sung, I had danced, I had worked in the government, I had you know, taught yoga, I had done all of these things. And I realized the one thing that permeated through all of that, the common thread that found its way through everything was teaching. I love teaching more than anything in the world. The thing in my life that I most closely could lose my identity in, Adam, okay. is, is teaching. You know, the whole like, if I cannot teach, I am not. Well, you know, right, right. The closest thing for me to that would be teaching. I come very, very, very close to identifying body, mind, and soul as a teacher. I love teaching. And I will humbly, not humbly say to our listeners, I'm really good. Okay, there, I said it. <laughs> I, I, I believe it. I mean, I'm just, I'm just gobbling up what you're saying here today. So <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I love teaching and I know how to do it. I know how it works. I know the science behind it. So anyway, all that to say, I had been doing the thing you do in your 20s where you do all sorts of jobs and you, you travel and you just figure out life and who you are. And maybe on another episode, we can talk about my friend who did her graduate thesis on how the midlife crisis happens in your 20s now. Oh, okay. Really fascinating concept. That sounds, that sounds you'll, interesting. You'll, okay. okay. You'll connect with it. Anyway. Um, and so I thought, let's go be a, let's go be a university teacher. Because 18 to 25, you know, 18 to 30, that age group, that's the people that I really enjoy teaching. That I find them just because usually in university, whatever you're taking, you want to take it because it's not high school where you have to take it, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. And so I went and I did a doctorate in pedagogy. And of course, my doctorate in pedagogy was filtered through the lens of performance because of my previous degrees being very heavy on performance. I had to look for programs that would allow me to take all of those intuitive things that I knew about teaching. Sidebar for our listeners, my father is a professor of education, so I come by this honestly. My sister went to teacher's college, my mom was a psychotherapist, so education, psychology, pedagogy, it was almost dinner time talk for us. So <laughs> It's all becoming clearer. <laughs> Remember the whole they're really smart thing? Yeah, that's yeah. where that started for me. I really had to keep up. Right, right at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, so a lot of what I ended up doing in my doctorate, I will admit, I sort of already knew. Like a lot of my doctorate wasn't particularly mind-blowing. It was more just a way to codify through the texts, through the, you know, the writers on this, through this, through my classes to really just sort of gather that sort of piecemeal background I had as a teacher and really bring it together in, in, in a very sort of um, focused way. So I found this program at the Ohio State, and yes, you have to say the Ohio State University. They're very interested in the the, um, to the point where they tried, to, there. they tried to trademark the word the. It was very funny. Dionne Warwick, the famous Dionne Warwick, even tweeted about it. She thought it was so funny. Anyway, so I found this program at the Ohio State University, and uh, it was a collaborative degree 
between three departments. So the music department, the speech and hearing science department. So for our listeners that think like speech language pathology and the otolaryngology department. And otolaryngology is ear, nose, throat medicine. So if you ever need to go to see a surgeon who specializes in ear, nose, throat, there's also a branch, there we go, a branch mm -hmm. of otolaryngology called laryngology. And laryngology are the ENTs who are really specialized in the voice. And they're the ones that our listeners may know would do the surgery on Adele when she lost her voice, for example, or the laryngologist who may have botched Julie Andrews' voice surgery when we lost Julie Andrews' voice. So there is a, there is a branch of otolaryngology called laryngology, which focuses on voice, swallowing, and airway. Um, so a little bit less on the upper part of the head, a little bit more on the lower part of the head and neck, right? And so... Um, I had never heard of a program like that. It was so interesting to me because I was really interested as a yoga teacher with a background in exercise physiology, I was really interested in the body and the human instrument that is this holistic thing, right? Because to, to make voice, to use our voice is neuroscience, it's psychology, it's math, it's physics, it's acoustics, it's anatomy, it's, it's, so many things it's cognition it's all of these things so i really wanted to study that and there was this multidisciplinary program in the medical aspect of the voice that just so happened to be at a university that was well known for educational psychology <laughs> so it it all just kind of again my type b life it's it's my encouragement to anyone listening life is waiting for you like life it's it's showing you that there are other things that you can do and you can't always control them and so my discovering of this program randomly and my decision to just take the leap and say yes because no is a powerful word but yes is a powerful yeah. word too mm -hmm. and so Again, people thought it was so planned and strategic. I said, no, I Googled for programs. That's <laughs> what I liked. Yeah. It just, so I, I can't tell you how much I encourage people. And it's also good acting training because you need to be able to improv as an actor. Just go with the flow. It will, it will reveal. Now, take care of yourself if you need to plan and that makes you feel safe. Plan. I'm not trying to take anyone's personalities away from them. But um, don't let the yeah. planning stay and stand in the way of the, the going and the doing kind of thing. You gotta, that's what makes life happen. You gotta leap. Mm -hmm. Eventually, you have to leap. You so, said something earlier, I thought it was awesome. Uh, something to the effect of like, you, you get these green lights, mm -hmm. you gotta pay attention to the green lights that, that life hands you. Yeah, man. And I think, um, yeah. I think paying attention for those and being aware of them and then deciding to act on them are three critical things. Uh, I've certainly struggled with that at different times in my life. Yeah. Uh, but I think I think what you're saying is is exactly it. You you have become very very adept, perhaps from a very young age, at identifying those green lights and just you know hitting the gas pedal and going for it. And I don't think I consciously knew I was doing that. I think it was just a part of my personality. But I just if it looked fun and it didn't hurt me, I was you know, off I went. You know, and, and now you would know that. I mean, you took a leap and and you moved to Stratford, so you did that yourself too. We did, yeah. The um. I, I did grow up here, so I, I had at least the fact that I'm familiar with the uh, with the city. Mm -hmm. um, my parents are still here in Stratford, Ontario, um, and my uh, my brother and his family are only live about forty minutes away. So, but having lived in Ottawa for uh, seventeen years, where where you and I met, um, deciding at the beginning of the pandemic that uh, you know it was time for us to make a life change and we had just had our our baby daughter and and a pandemic hit uh, all within about 
two months, we just decided to, all right, let's, let's do this, <laughs> you know? So we left jobs, we moved houses, we tried to get ourselves resettled and here, here we are. So and, we're, and now, now we're trying to figure out what to do next, you know? So it's, it's a series of things, but that's a great example. Thank you for suggesting it. That was a situation where uh, my wife and I and our daughter had uh, a few things come together for us very quickly that had not come together that way in a long, long time. And um, um, we didn't have any family in the Ottawa area. So for us, it was going to be important to have family closer. And people were getting tired of making the 600 kilometer trip to see us in the, in the snowy winters and the construction, yeah. all that stuff that you, yeah. you know about. But we had these factors come together um, for us very quickly. And we just decided to, um, to, to pull the proverbial trigger and, and just jump and do that. And you know, I have to give a lot of that credit to my wife, actually, because of the, of the two of us, she's often the one in our life who is the one who says you know what we've been talking about this it's time let's do it and so i am so beyond glad and fortunate to have a um that insightful and observant life partner mm -hmm. uh, which is great so i owe her a tremendous amount of credit but she's uh very good at making that business case and uh, we see these factors come together and she's often the one who says okay it's time let's, let's do it let's act on that um that's awesome I, I, it's, it's it is awesome and, and she's just a wonderful human being and um to that extent, I can relate to, you know, when you talk about, you get these collections of factors that come together, yeah, almost like a little cohesive package. And you can say, hey, now's the time. Let's just go do this. So you must have done the same type of thing, packed up, moved to another country uh, to pursue um, this newfound collection of interests that all came together for you. Not only did I do that, Adam, I moved to Trump's America. Like, I mean, it was, <laughs> I mean, talk about a 180 of a country to live in i mean the it's just it was a whole thing <laughs> i had so many people say to me why <laughs> why are you why and i literally had friends who were and family who were worried about me i mean i can't tell you the number of times people would would check in on me and mm -hmm. the day i arrived in columbus ohio was the day of charlottesville I mean, it was, it was the green light in my life that I've never questioned quite so much <laughs> because, because let me tell you, my, my PhD was not a perfect experience and there was a lot of challenges and it was difficult and I went through some really, really hard things there. And I also lived through a very, very tragic time for that country um, that was in so, and it's still in a lot of pain to this day, I think. A lot of turmoil, yeah. Ooh, a lot of turmoil. And so it was one of the first times I sort of said to myself, okay, hold on, green lights, are we still, are we still following these? You know what I mean? Is, is this still right? And um, yeah, I had a difficult first year for sure. The first year was very hard. You're, any big move like that is a little deracinating as it is, you know what I mean? You're, 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 you're just packing up and taking what you can with you to another country for a degree. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and degrees aren't everything. And, and mm -hmm. I really wanted to know that the degree was actually substantively fulfilling and that there was something substantial mm -hmm. to bring to my life because I'm not a fan of doing degrees in education for the sake of doing degrees with in education right it just it's not worth it to me well and plus there's so much um administration oh. life administration that has to go on with any kind of major change and um you know whether you're you're whether you're traveling it's the the, the my family often call it the bureaucracy of life that you you have to 
you have to manage um, in the background. And I think for, for many people that can be a disincentive to paying attention to the green light because they look at the green light, they wanna go, but um, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that also has to happen in the background to make that useful or enjoyable. Um, yeah. and, and some, sometimes rightly so, because I think, you know, sometimes taking the risk without working through some of those things can lead people to, um, a difficult place too. Um, but I think more often than not, uh, the, the risks are built up in people's heads more than they need to be. Uh, they're often more, more surmountable than people think. Um, but it does take time, you know, we've talked about already for, for people to get to that spot in life and realize that, you know, there might be a, an obstacle in the way and I don't have to go through it. I can go around it. I can go under it. I can go over it. Um, I can turn around and go in a different direction again. And that's okay. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is. I think we get very focused on, on a, a one track thing and, um, mm. yeah. or we have a tendency to do that. Um, and for some people that might be good. Maybe that is their green light. Mm-hmm. Uh, for others, I think, you know, figuring out a way to navigate it around it is is the way to go. I heard this wonderful quote that said, life is lived forwards, but it's understood backwards. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty thing too. Yeah, 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 perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. But, yeah, but going forward is the mystery part, right? That's the, that's for me, the exciting part. But you don't always know if a net's going to catch you, and you don't always know if, the, as you put it so well, that sort of administrative—it's like administrating your own life, administering your own life. If if it's worth it, because in my case too, there was visas and immigration. Oh, under, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not going to hide it. Under that administration was a very very challenging <laughs> thing. I mean, that administration was not favorable to international students by any means. Anyway. Um, I, uh, it was, you're not always sure if, if the administration is, or administrative stuff is going to be worth it. And yet, understanding my life backwards, it was. It was. Great. So I just sort of <laughs> kept on keeping on, as they say. Mm -hmm. So what did you finish your, um, your dissertation in? Or what's the, um, the sort of uh, degree that you finished with for, for our listeners? My official title. I tend to say PhD because nobody knows what a DMA is, but okay. it's, it's the equivalent of a PhD. Um, but my degree is called a DMA, which stands for a Doctor of Musical Arts, okay. which is kind of like the difference between a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Music. Okay. So a Bachelor of Arts in Music tends to be a Bachelor of Arts in Music History, Music Theory, the more theoretical subjects, whereas a Bachelor of Music degree tends to be more composition, performance, conducting, teaching, you know, the really sort of applied music subjects. So if you take a BA in music and go all the way up, you end up with a PhD. If you take a BMUS in music and go all the way up, you end up with a DMA. DMA and PhD is the same level of, of attainment kind of thing. Yeah. Um, mine is just a little more clinical. Mine's considered a more clinical applied doctorate. Um, so I have a DMA in voice pedagogy and performance. And I have a health certificate, a graduate health certificate in something called singing health or what we call vocology. And vocology is the field that combines those three things I mentioned of voice, speech, and ear, nose, throat medicine. So in that vocology program, that's when I was scrubbed in in surgeries. So I was in surgery rooms, not up in the booth, 
I was literally a, a wow. meter or two from the patient scrubbed in in surgeries. The speech and hearing stuff, I was in the clinic doing voice therapy, observing voice therapy, helping with voice therapy, um, music. And then, of course, I was also a good old voice major, so I was singing recitals, you know, doing the whole thing one does to be a musician. But um, that was all sort of under this guise of vocology, this, this singing health. And then because, you know, green lights, um, my dissertation, my methodological approach was educational psychology, learning science, curriculum design, the neuroscience of learning and cognition and how, how we can make education better through understanding the field of pedagogy, which in my opinion isn't about the art of teaching, it's about the science of learning. I believe that the art of teaching should be begotten from the science behind learning. And I think too often when we teach, we focus on the teaching, but we forget to make sure if anyone's learning anything. Right. So yeah. my dissertation was just that. It was a very sort of meta, because I actually critiqued doctoral programs in music. So oh, I critiqued my own program while in my own program. It was really fun. That's very brave and, and bold, avant-garde, I must say. And what's so funny to me, Adam, is that everybody says that they're like, whoa, cool, man, that was bold. How did you pull that off? My committee loved it. My committee was just eating. And I think it's because what I was saying was so necessary and so just truthful that my committee couldn't, they, they couldn't disagree. They all said, oh, yes, we've been trying to get it. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe it took a, like a quote unquote, an outsider's perspective um, who's had the inside view to be the voice of that suggestion. And my life hasn't been entrenched in just one thing, right? I come from all of these various green lights that I followed. So I had this more holistic view of what learning and teaching were in the first place. And so once I had sort of firmly found myself back in the you know voice performance world, blah, blah, whatever that means. But once I had found myself, I brought so much more than just a career entrenched in that very specific subject, right? So if anything, I almost got a sense of relief from many of my committee members. They said, oh, finally someone's saying. <laughs> well, we haven't been able to say or couldn't say or were, had our hands tied from saying or whatever it happens to be. Well, because people do feel ethically that they don't want to step on, you know, people's totally. toes and they don't want to criticize or they feel that maybe criticism isn't due. Or, you know, and I get it. It's it's hard to, to, to safely critique, but not more than critique, to criticize, right? It, it's can be hard to criticize. And so um, I was very fortunate to have a committee that really supported what I was what I was doing. And well, so, what, a, what a statement about them if they were that, that positive and receptive and supportive to what you were saying. I mean, that, that, that's, uh, that just speaks a huge amount about um, the, the culture that you learned in and, and studied in there too. My, one of my colleagues uh, on my committee, he, he summed it up perfectly at the end of my dissertation defense, which was on Zoom, thanks to the pandemic. Um, he, uh, he said, Mark, your dissertation is just like you. You say a lot, but in a short amount of time. <laughs> Great. One of my mottos in life is speak less and say more. Say more. Yes, you've said that. I, I love that. Yes. I think it's great. Say more. And so my dissertation was not 400 pages. It was not. And I didn't judge myself because I don't think we should be judging academic rigor based on length. I should think we should be judging it based on what it says. And so it was about 150 pages, which some people would judge as not being rigorous enough. But I very firmly believe if you read it, there is a lot to say in there. And I decided that I would rather say a lot and speak less because that's that's my motto. And once I said what I needed to say, I, I made my point, made my argument. Here you go. 
that's amazing the and it, it's funny you mentioned that uh, i think i think again your your statement of like uh speak less say more i find that's a nice fit with like our thoughts and found idea yeah i, I love it I've, I've, I've meant to mention that to you i know that's um i think it's on your instagram uh little profile there that where i noticed that i meant to mention it uh, but also when you think about uh, and these are these are two anecdotes and I, I have to say for our listeners i have not fully investigated them perhaps you've heard of these anecdotes um so I, I don't want to sound like I'm speaking out of turn. Uh, so at the, at the risk of sounding ignorant, apparently there are two famous uh, short dissertations. One was, I believe, by uh, Frederick Banting, who um, developed insulin. I remember hearing anecdotally, he was in the middle of finishing his research at the time when um, he and uh, Best, I think Charles Best, um, were finishing their, their, their testing of, of insulin uh, for, for diabetes treatment. and he basically wrapped it up really quickly and said like, like I've, I've got this really important work going on right now and I, I've got the results and I can prove it, uh, but it's going to have to wait while I like get this work actually going. So he's got a very, very short, you know, tight, like the proof's in the pudding here. So uh, we'll get back to that kind of thing. So that was one anecdote. And the other one was, um, again, I think in mathematics, I think it was, um, uh, was it one of the last theorems uh, or, or proving the proving one of the theorems, and apparently someone had written it in the margin of like some some journal or some book, and I, I can prove there's just not enough space here in the margin for me to fully show how this proof works. So we'll, I'll, I'll come back to it, kind of thing. And it never happened, but we all it's one of those theorems that you know we we um, we know that it works. I'm not sure if to this day if it's actually been you know mathematically proven as to how it works, if that makes sense. Um, but um, and it was. I was it was Fermat's last theorem or one of those big math mathematicians had a theory um, and, and we know that it works um, when you plug numbers into it but understanding the raw mathematic mechanics behind it it's still apparently confusing if 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 not yet unsolved yeah so I hear you sometimes there's room for shorter shorter is good and I hadn't heard those stories. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and like I said, too, I, I have to. I should go and, and check uh, check those and make sure I've got those correct. Well, and if anyone doesn't, if there's someone in the world who doesn't need to prove his contribution to the world with more words, it's Frederick Benting. <laughs> he discovered insulin. My goodness, I think that's all you need to know about him. <laughs> that, well, that's that's kind of what he said. I think. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, that's one of the most important contributions to overall human health that's ever happened. So I don't yeah. think he needs 400 pages to explain the importance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, so no, I think it's important to speak your truth, say your truth, all of those things. Um, I just, I didn't want to dawdle along. I wanted to just say what I needed to say. And um, I was very passionate. I actually enjoyed, I know everyone's going to think I'm crazy, but I actually enjoyed writing my dissertation. I really, I, I loved the subject and I just wanted to get right down to it and, and make the point and make the argument. And um, in a very Margaret Atwood, Diana Krall way, say you interpret it as you, as you want to. Do with it what you will. I don't have to be right. This is the thing. I didn't write my dissertation to be correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the point. Right. I think we're too obsessed right now, especially with what I've seen on social media recently. I don't think that everything that I say has to be based in right or wrong or good and bad. I don't, I don't put things out into the world to have them be judged as right or wrong. 
When I work with a director and I make an interpretive choice, for example, as an actor, if they want me to do something else, I'll do something else. But it's not a big deal to me, you know? And if I write a paper and somebody disagrees, great. I've just learned something now too. Mm -hmm. I don't have a lot of ego stake in good and bad and right and wrong. It Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter to me because until 1500, we thought the earth was flat. (laughs) That was a scientific fact, inverted commas, until 1500, you know, we thought, um, doctors used to um, advertise cigarettes. They used to advertise cigarettes. So this obsession with right and wrong mm-hmm. and bad is going to drive us into the ground. I mm-hmm. really, really believe that. Mm-hmm. I think if we could all just put out what we feel and what we've noticed and what we've observed with a little bit more humility and mm-hmm. the ability to be both right and wrong, God forbid, we hold those two things at the same time. I think we'd all be a little bit kinder and gentler to each other because mm-hmm. we would realize that sometimes people are just putting things out in the world because it's what they've experienced. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. And I even put that in my introduction to my dissertation. I said, this doesn't mean I'm right. Mm-hmm. No, I- <laughs> I've just used evidence-based research. I've looked at things. I've observed. I'm a teacher. I'm a performer who has been taught by teachers. I'm a father who's a teacher. You know, I, I, I have experiences. And I think I said something along the lines of, if my dissertation is obsolete in 50 years, it will have done its job. Mm-hmm. Because if it is no longer progressive, that means education has improved, it has improved. and it did its work. So I, I think that we often speak more <laughs> rather than saying more. more. Because mm-hmm. we're small, we're right. And if we could all let go of this need to be right or wrong, or good or bad. I think I think neither of those, or I don't think any of those four things should be the goal of life. No. Well, we we spoke about that the last time we chatted about, um, you know, this this need to be open to yeah. to find this oh this open ground and be comfortable in that open space. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm picking up on you know you giving um, constructive criticism to your your committee or your department, and My I my field really. Pardon, pardon, sorry. My field really. Your field, you're really... Well, and I, I think the fact that they were receptive to it, the fact that you said it, and the fact that they were receptive to it are two really interesting pieces. Um, and you and I talked about this in our, our last conversation. I'm, I'm playing with this idea in my head that one of the issues we're having a lot of problems with in society right now is people's lack of comfort, or perhaps it's a lack of skill in being able to say no. And by no, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a criticism. It might be asserting an opinion or mm-hmm. a view. Mm-hmm. I think there's a way to do that. There's an art form to doing that. You want to be able to, to say something uh, in a constructive, healthy way that, that may be about something uncomfortable, maybe about something that's not working or that's broken mm-hmm. or that's fundamentally unacceptable even. Mm-hmm. So being able to articulate that message mm-hmm. is one piece of the puzzle. You want to articulate it in a way that uh, is going to be as accommodating to the recipient as possible while still getting your point across. But the second part of that, flip side of the coin, if you will, is the ability of, a, of the receiver or a listener to have the same type of skills or openness to be able to hear that message and not be offended by it, uh, to not take it as an attack, uh, to not take it as a put down or an insult, and to then be able to respond gracefully, graciously to it, um, in a way that doesn't make the the speaker, the initiator of that point, 
feel uncomfortable or threatened. So there's this, there's this nice little dance. I'm trying to pick up on some of the, the, the things you've mentioned today. You know, there's this dance between um, saying something properly and also then having someone be able to receive it and respond properly. And a lot of what's happening right now, like you mentioned on social media, it's just like someone says, like, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Okay, it just everything just fell apart right there. Like, it, Or you're right. Of course I'm right. Like it, whatever way, whatever shape it takes, there's something that's that's not working well in that space of an exchange right now. Um, and I think whether again, whether it's a, a lack of skills or a lack of awareness, I, but I think those are things we could teach people. Mm -hmm. How do you get a point across constructively and healthily? And to a recipient, how do you take that in and in in an equally respectful and, and healthy way as well? And then you start the response, of course. And that's a dance again. But I think it doesn't need to be a competitive dance. I think it needs to be a, uh, a collaborative dance. A and communication. A one. And what, sorry? And a, a one. one. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, I think that might be a great cue for us to make episode two start with that topic. That sounds great. <laughs> I think that would be a really, because I love that topic. The communication aspect and the and how to how to get it get it done the, the proper way or the correct uh, proper it sounds that I'm saying that word that sounds very um, yeah yeah authoritative um, but uh, but but get it done effectively effectively and and it, and it's because of my background as a teacher and, and understanding how people learn things so much of the way that we have dialogue right now we'll never get that person that you want to learn something to learn it if you talk to them that way mm -hmm. so it's it's um it's something that I would. I would love to explore next time. I think we should. I think we should give ourselves time to talk about that because I think it's really, really a fascinating subject. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That sounds. That sounds perfect. Yeah. So why don't we? Do you want to wrap up there today? Sure. We can. We can leave that as a teaser for uh, another upcoming episode. You know me, Type B. Wherever we go, wherever, wherever, wherever works. All right. Sounds. <laughs> That sounds good. No, that's something. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much uh, for this. Day. This has just been a great chat. Um, uh, before we publish it or, or launch it into the world, I'll circle around with you so we can figure out some some neat, jazzy ways to describe it and talk about it and stuff like that. Jazz it up. Throw jazz some up. jazz hands on there. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, Adam, this has, been, this has been great. You're always delightful, and I can't wait to talk to you again. Well, we've got a long list of stuff that uh, we've already noted together and that uh, I've made some mental notes as we're going along here with some extra questions for you. So, um, Oh, and I'll have questions for you, my friend. Don't you worry. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds fun. All right, I'm looking forward to it. That sounds great. This was a little more introductory of me, I know. So hopefully next time we can have a little bit more of a more of a conversation, which I think we did today as well, but I hope the listeners didn't get tired of hearing me talk today. <laughs> I, I don't think they could have. And, uh, you know, and if, if, if that was the case, you know, perhaps the show is not for them and I'm okay with that. If it is, um, if they've enjoyed it, that's also wonderful. That's what we're aiming for here. Good. So, um, so I think it's, again, it's, it's a, we just want this to be a really fun space for us to have some great conversations. It is. And as, again, best title ever. So it's, it's awesome. So thank you for having me. You're very welcome, and let's do this again soon. Um, in the meantime, thank you to, to everybody who has uh, been listening to us today. Uh, we're grateful to have you along for these conversations, and uh, we hope that you have a wonderful day wherever you are. Take care, everybody. Bye for now.